Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. I would really like to thank everyone for staying with us. We left the best to the last. And as you know, Irv Weissman is our keynote speaker for the second day of the CIRM grantee meeting. And it is such a privilege to introduce Professor Irv Weissman, who is known affectionately by most of us in this field that he pioneered as Irv. Uh, If you look on the Stanford website, where he's the director of the Institute for Stem Cell and Regenerative Medicine, you see that he has at least 26 awards. Uh, He's on the Council for the National Academy of Sciences and uh, has really pioneered many aspects of this field. So in trying to describe Irv, other than he appears to be superhuman, um, you know, you think about Leonardo da Vinci, somebody who's really transformed an entire area. He's a Renaissance man. But I think what really stands out to me, other than his unquenchable curiosity, is um, a quote from uh, Sir Isaac Newton. I have been impressed with the urgency of doing. It is not enough to know we must apply. Being willing is not enough. We must do. And when you see the people that um, have really prospered as a result of stem cell research, with Irv being an architect of the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine uh, just over 16 years ago now, uh, together with Larry Goldstein and other spectacular scientists in the field, we know that individuals have really benefited. But what I really wanted to say is that Irv has also been ahead of his time, not just because of his ideas, because he understands that the diversity of approaches, the diversity of people, and the diversity of our our ideas are together what makes science strong. And Irv has always fought to dispel dogma, or at least to challenge it. And I think that that's why he continues to be a major leader in the field of stem cell biology He's applied everything he's learned, um, not only to science, but also to medicine, and more recently started a company that was acquired by Gilead and will benefit patients in the future, as well as now, who have cancer stem cell-driven disorders. So I think, you know, if you look at the CIRM mantra, something better than hope, Irv personifies hope. And I think that he perpetuates all of us or he propels us forward to be able to make sure that we don't take on the worst things without understanding the answers. And that's where Irv comes in. Um, So it really is a pleasure to introduce uh, my friend and colleague, Professor Irv Weissman. And uh, I know that uh, what he will talk about will be immensely interesting as always. And thanks again, Irv, for joining us. Hi, I'm Irv Wiseman at Stanford University. Uh, Many years ago, we found a way to identify and isolate and eventually transplant what are known as blood-forming stem cells. This first slide shows you the parameters of stem cells that are important. So blood-forming stem cells are only one in 100,000 of the cells in the blood-forming organs, like bone marrow. They're only made once in life because when they divide later on as stem cells, they make more stem cells. The very next step down, where they commit their daughter cells to becoming blood, they can no longer self-renew. And then you can see the blood cells there. Because they're only made once during the 
embryo to fetal stage, they're responsible for the development of the blood forming system, for its maintenance. And when things go wrong, like cancer or leukemia or other blood diseases, amazingly, you should look first at those one in 100,000 cells as causative of the disease. When we found that we could isolate blood-forming stem cells, we decided immediately that we would isolate human blood-forming stem cells and then test them in clinical transplantation. Years ago, we found a mechanism. We developed the mechanism to isolate blood-forming stem cells from the blood-forming organs. This is a cell separation technique, but this cartoon is simply to say you start with only one in 100,000 cells that are stem cells. Most of the other cells are going to be bad for you. So if you're doing a transplant into yourself in order to save you from high-dose radiation, like a bomb, or high-dose chemotherapy for your cancer, the one thing you want to save your blood-forming system is the stem cell. And what you don't want is anything else, especially if you have a cancer that caused you to get the high-dose chemotherapy, and there's cancer cells, you don't want to put them back in. Now, in saying that, I'm going to warn you that for 30 years, people have been claiming they have been transplanting stem cells, but what they transplant is bone marrow or mobilized blood, not purified stem cells. Now, I'm going to show you the difference between transplanting mobilized blood and purified stem cells, which we showed directly, for example, taking it from breast cancer patients where the breast cancer is spread throughout the body. So no local therapy like surgery or radiation could cure them. You need chemotherapy. The breast cancer cells in the mobilized blood have been 250,000-fold depleted. There were none there when we tested it. So what does that do for people? Here, 20 years after we began the clinical trials, are the results. So the treatment to try to get rid of the last cancer cell in the body is to use high doses of drugs like these three that I'm listing on the top. You give a lethal dose. As you get rid of more and more cancer cells with higher and higher doses, you also get rid of the body's own blood-forming stem cells. So you need to replace them after you finish this high-dose chemotherapy. The standard of care for the last 30 years, which really ended uh, in the early 2000s, was to give back mobilized blood contaminated with cancer cells, but containing stem cells. And here we did that at Stanford, and we found that half of the women were dead a little over two years, about 26, 27 months. And all of them were dead or had disease by 10 years to 15 years later. When we rescued them with cancer-free stem cells, we found that we extended the median survival, so only half of them were dead, at 10 years. So we had, for the majority of the people treated, an extension of life with their families at home, doing their jobs 
from two years to 10 years. And today, 20 years later, actually more than 20 years later, one-third of the women are alive without disease. On my 80th birthday last year, I met two of those women who didn't know they were going to be in the therapy, but luckily they were. So you can say, that's great. That must be a therapy. But in fact, a large company, which promised to exp expand this therapy, bought my small company that carried out this trial and decided somewhere around the year 2000 to shelve it in favor of something that they thought would do better for them. And I'll leave it up to you to think what do better, do better for them. But I could calculate from this extension of median survival that after the end of the chemotherapy and before we rescued them with cancer-free stem cells, they had less than 100,000 cancer cells in the body, even though they started with 10 to 100 billion cancer cells. So the chemotherapy was terrifically effective, and the only way we could get the full effective chemotherapy was to rescue them with cancer-free cells. So when you think about I can purify blood-forming stem cells, what are all the diseases you could and we are approaching by isolating at least blood-forming stem cells? So here's a cartoon of blood-forming stem cells going through the steps to make blood. You can see there are lots of steps on the way which are defined steps in development. Now, if you have a blood-forming stem cell and you have sickle cell anemia, all of your blood cells will have sickle cell anemia or Mediterranean anemia, or hemophilia, or a bunch of these diseases I have on the right. So if you want to cure these diseases, you've got two choices. And these are cures, not take a drug every day. You can either transplant stem cells from a donor whose stem cells don't have the disease, Replace your own blood-forming system with blood-forming systems that work. And that will cure every one of those at least experimental models of disease. The other way, which is always dramatic and exciting and almost science fiction, is that you could take your own stem cells, fix the gene that's disease, replace it with a healthy one. A lot of people nowadays are doing this with CRISPR therapy. So it's a little more involved because you gotta get out the stem cells, you gotta find a way to fix just that gene and don't alter another gene. So I don't care which of these work best. I want both of them going forward as fast as we can. And both of them are going forward at our stem cell institute at Stanford. So now you wanna purify the stem cells to go from a donor to a host. Now, when a donor and a host are genetically different, a skin graft on the recipient would be rejected by the T cells on the donor. And if you transplant those T cells along with stem cells into the host, they'll attack the skin and the lungs and the mouth and the liver and the heart 
and the patient would be in hospital with what's called graft-versus-host disease. The T-cells from the donor attack the host. We found, many years ago, purified stem cells don't have T-cells. They do not cause graft-versus-host disease. So we want to change the whole field of bone marrow transplant to purified stem cells from yourself, free of cancer cells, to enable cancer treatment from a donor in order to get their system in your body. Now, what are the advantages of doing that? Well, here's a disease that you might not expect is a disease of the blood-forming system. It's called juvenile diabetes or type 1 diabetes. And in the mouse model of this disease, at about four, five, six months of age, they get diabetes. Their insulin-producing cells are destroyed by their defective T cells that are immune cells that weren't taught to know self from non-self. When we tried to save them with the animal's own bone marrow after high-dose chemotherapy or radiation, we just bought a month. That wasn't enough. So when we purified the stem cells so none of those diabetes-causing T cells were crossed, you bought another month. But if we transplanted stem cells from a donor that didn't have the genetic predisposition for the disease, we could prevent completely the development of diabetes. If we just did it a week before, they would have gotten diabetes. For those that had diabetes for a long time, we needed to be able to transplant blood-forming stem cells and the insulin-producing organ or stem cells from the donor. So along the way, we found that if we transplant blood-forming stem cells from a donor to a recipient, and they take, the immune system comes from the donor, and it won't reject an organ coming from the donor. And in the model I just showed you, we co-transplanted blood-forming stem cells and insulin-producing islet cells into animals, mice, that had juvenile diabetes, were maintained on insulin for at least six months, and we cured them. That should have been a therapy when we first published it in 2001. It's still not a therapy because there was no deliverer of purified stem cell therapies out there, largely because we had depended on a company. Now, we wanted to be able to take that to children with diabetes. But as I told you, to prepare somebody for a blood-forming transplant, you give high-dose radiation or chemotherapy. Now, if you've got a kid who's just showing the first signs of diabetes, drinking too much, peeing too much, because the sugar is just building up in the body, you don't want to give chemotherapy or radiation, which has a 15 to 20% risk of killing them. And if you didn't get rid of the T cells, another 30, 40% of graft versus host disease. So if we use purified stem cells, we developed a new method to replace radiation chemotherapy with an antibody that gets rid of their own disease stem cells, another antibody to get rid of the T cells that would reject the stem cells coming from the donor. And that worked. 
we just published last year that we could almost take any donor and any recipient. So here we have a mouse. We're going to get the bone marrow, pure stem cells from it. We'll transplant it into an animal that we had given the antibodies that get rid of the stem cells and the T cells. We give another antibody that helps it. And when we do that, you get donor-derived blood, the immune system, and the uh, innate immune system. Now we take hearts that we could obtain from genetically identical donors, and we transplant them. And we put a little bit of a heart tissue into the ear of a mouse. So now you have the beating heart in the ear. And if we take it from the stem cell donor, it survives without any chemotherapy, any immunosuppressive drugs, nothing. And when we look at the tissue, you see the heart tissue. If we get it, though, from a third party, like this one, not identical to the blood-forming stem cell, so you got to have that match, it's rejected within 13 days. So this makes blood-forming stem cells the platform for all of regenerative medicine and all organ transplants because you take away the toxicity with the antibiotic conditioning. We found a few years later, that we could isolate in pure form human brain-forming stem cells. And we tested them in many ways for their ability to restore brain by putting them into the brains of immune-deficient mouse and found they behaved just like the mouse brain-forming stem cells. But these were human. So they would keep self-renewing in the stem cell zone. They'd migrate long distances to make new neurons and or astrocytes or logodendrocytes, and they would be site-appropriate in their appearance. And this is just to show things could go wrong in some people, and you could get a cancer of the brain called glioblastoma. And I'm going to come back to that, but I just want you to see the enabling. Now we wanted to know... Could we co-transplant brain-forming stem cells and blood-forming stem cells from the same donor? Well, first, we developed brain stem cells from a common donor that we could expand and did clinical trials at a company I co-founded called Stem Cells Incorporated for macular degeneration, the dry type, for spinal cord injury in the neck or in the chest, or genetic diseases of newborns, which are always lethal. And those cells worked, and they were going well. And we now need to move this into clinical trials at a much higher case. We found that we had to maintain immunosuppression. So... We paused everything until we could get the blood-forming and the brain-forming stem cells from the same donor so that we could now move into safe methods of doing it. While we were thinking about how cancers start, how leukemias start, we were finding that every tissue and organ in the body has its own tissue-specific stem cell. And that some place in the development of cancer 
a cancer cell gains the self-renewal property that we thought was limited to normal stem cells. A bunch of us did that trial, and we found in the experimental therapies, if you got rid of everything but the cancer or tumor stem cell, the cancer comes back. This is about all of the drugs that we had in the 20th century. Because companies tried to say, can you get rid of 90% of the cells? Well, if you get rid of the 90% of the cells, but you don't get rid of all the tumor cells, it'll grow back. So we hypothesized, and I'll show you, have proven that if you get rid of the tumor stem cells alone, the tumor goes away. So back in 2000, with two of my postdoctoral fellows from Japan, we got bone marrow samples from Hiroshima Hospital of people who got acute leukemia 15 to 20 years after the atom bomb explosion. And we were able to separate those bone marrows into the markers that would be blood-forming stem cells. And then we found a particular cell type which had the leukemia stem cell. It was a cell that normally doesn't self-renew on its own, but with the mutation, and here's one we're showing, that causes the leukemia, all of these leukemia stem cells have it. So when you try to pass the disease from a human into an immune-deficient mouse, these cells passage the leukemia, the bone marrow stem cell don't. But we found that 5 to 40% of these stem cells from those people with the leukemia, even though they're not yet leukemic, they have the mutation. So that made us pause and think and say, just a second, if we have blood-forming stem cells that go through those progenitors to make blood, and we have multiple mutations that could occur to lead to the leukemia stem cell, because we had isolated it, and with Katrina Jameson, we also isolated it uh, for myeloid blast crisis of chronic myelogenous leukemia. So we had all of the acute myelogenous leukemias and the killing phase of chronic myelogenous leukemia. And we found there were a number of mutations. Now, if those mutations had occurred in the many more numerous cells downstream, they would be lost with the lifespan of those cells. These cells don't self-renew even if they have the first mutation or the second or the third. So many more cells in the body are getting those mutations. Every human being that we've tested and others have tested have this translocation that can give rise to leukemia. But they don't have leukemia. So that said to us, the only way that that's going to persist and be able to make the clone, the daughter cells that are leukemic, is if it is in the blood-forming stem cell. So our hypothesis was that this expands, this expands, and then one of the daughter cells that had mutation, one gets one, two, and so on. Now, if that hypothesis is correct, we ought to be able to find all of the mutations in a person's leukemia stem cell, and then by isolating the single blood-forming stem cells, we ought to have one, if all seven mutations were there, we ought to have one that has six, another one that has five, another four, three, and all the way back. So we thought this was a brilliant idea. Let's see if it works. 
So with a whole team of people, we found and published eight years ago that every patient that we've looked at with acute myelogenous leukemia at Stanford, we could do a DNA sequence of the leukemia and find all the mutations, and we would simultaneously do a mutation of their normal cells, so we would look for mutations in the leukemia, not in the normal cells. In patient 70, this is just our jargon, so that nobody else can understand us, of the mutations and the genes that are mutated. But we could make, with DNA technology, probes specific for each mutation, and then we could take from the same bone marrow of the same patient, single blood-forming stem cells, and test all of these mutations to say, does that stem cell have zero or one or two of these? And here is that patient on this lower right. The first mutation that occurred turns out to be a gene called TET2, and it now had expanded, so it was, in fact, pretty numerous. And then a second mutation, it turned out to be the other chromosome that has TET2. And it wasn't just this pa patient 70, but another patient that we looked at. And so we could look at the stepwise events in normal stem cells until the very last event makes the leukemia break away. Now we could look at each event and, be, and begin to say, how numerous are they? Do they keep repeating from patient to patient? Are there different paths? And can we look at each mutation and find a therapy that would target that mutation when it's a full leukemia or when it's a pre-leukemia and you don't know it's leukemia yet? So what we found is we could find those for each one. I'm going to show you very soon what that could be. But on the way, Wendy Pang and I showed Another lethal disease, blood-forming disease in humans, is a mutation in blood-forming stem cells that in older people, because it takes a long time for that to develop, the blood-forming system is entirely taken over by that mutant stem cell, and it can't make some cells like platelets or red blood cells or granulocytes. And then two years after that, one of our former trainees now then at Harvard, Sid Jaswal, working with Ben Ebert, show the older you get, the more likely you have a cell with the first mutation expanding. They're 100 to 1,000-fold more frequent than the ones that have these incurable diseases, AML and myelodysplastic syndrome, but they predispose to these and other blood diseases. And amazingly, those people have the highest risk factor for heart attacks and stroke, and aneurysms. So what we thought we were dealing with was just something that would help blood formation. And as we get to the point that with purified cells, we can begin to understand the order of events and in normal population, what happens, we get way further down the line. So back in 1998, and then again in the 2000s, we began comparing highly purify blood-forming stem cells for the genes that are expressed in leukemia stem cells. And we found one that was always on leukemia stem cells, never at high levels or significant levels of normal, and it was called CD47. 
What it is, is a don't eat me signal. And it works by preventing the scavenger cells in the body, macrophages that are all throughout the body and all places in the body. It blocks their ability to eat cells that they think are dangerous. And they know they're dangerous because those cells have put an eat me marker on their surface. And so if this binds to this receptor for it, it gets eaten unless the don't eat me signal countermands it. So we made an antibody that blocked the don't eat me signal and we put the cells together with macrophages, human leukemias, and it worked. It took us about eight or nine years to do a real clinical trial. And these are patients with two incurable diseases, acute myelogenous leukemia of the elderly, and what I told you about myelodysplastic syndrome, and at a company we started called 47 Inc. Almost all of the patients with AML or MDS, instead of growing more tumor, the tumor shrank down. And it shrank down for as long as we followed most of the patients. So already from a discovery that we began funding uh, in the 2000s just to follow this discovery, we're curing patients. We hope for a long time. When we looked at incurable patients with really high-grade lymphomas, we found that we could add the standard therapy called rituximab to this blocking antibody and those patients, even though they were resistant to rituximab and all other drugs, over half of them showed shrinkage for quite long periods of time. So in the two first cases that we looked at, we have real therapies now going on in late-stage clinical trials. And just as a teaser, we found the same when our colleagues Mike Clark and friend Sheeran gave us human breast cancer cells, the cancer stem cells, that we could put into an immune-deficient mouse, into the breast, and the anti-47 got rid of it. So if you think about, we cured a third of the patients by rescuing their from high-dose chemotherapy with post-transplant antibodies, uh, uh, pardon me, high-dose chemotherapy, we want to get the other two-thirds cured, if we can, by adding second therapies when they only have 100,000 cells rather than 100 billion cells to get rid of. That we hope to do soon in the future. That set of therapies and those diseases turn out to be not the only ones that show abnormal expansion of a stem cell. So with Gerlinda Wernig, we've shown in patients with incurable pulmonary fibrosis, lung fibrosis, usually a little later in life, or liver fibrosis, requiring a liver transplant, their lungs go from here to here. 
The fibroblasts that are taking over the lungs come from the outside layer of the lung. The drugs that are the standard of care open it up a little bit, but they really just slow it down. But if we give that blocking antibody plus an anti-inflammatory antibody, at least in mice and next we try in humans, we can clear an already fibrotic lung. Adhesions following surgery can come back and come back. And Yuval Rinkovich and Jonathan Tsai and I have found two antibodies together in the mouse model of peritoneal adhesions. We can cure it. And probably the last and most amazing part is that even atherosclerosis that causes the heart attack, the stroke, the aneurysm, losing your limbs, or going blind because of diabetes, the abnormally expanding smooth muscle cells that block the artery have the eat me and don't eat me signal. And we published, and now we have more recent publications, that at least in the mouse model, we can get rid of the plaque or prevent its development. So that's a whole bunch of diseases. Now to finish, I'll just say, as we follow our basic science line of research, and of course, as we are aging, that is we aging investigators, we want to look, is the blood forming system of a young person or a young mouse exactly the same as an 80-year-old person or two-year-old mouse? And we found it isn't. There are at least two kinds of blood forming stem cells that are formed during the embryonic phase of life. The ones that dominate when you're young make lots of immune lymphocytes to fight new infections. The ones that dominate in the old part of life don't bother making new lymphocytes, but they make many more granulocytes and macrophages to get rid of acute infections. Now that whole system evolved before trains, planes, and cars. It's the same in mice as it is in humans, and humans have this old one. In this pandemic, because we don't have many new, many lymphocytes left that can make lots of new lymphocytes to get rid of the infection, T cells and B cells, the trains, planes, and the cars bring in HIV or Ebola, are COVID. And we know that the oldest people are the most susceptible to lethal infection with COVID. We know that at the time they get it and get the lethality, they have dominating old-type stem cells. So we are working on, can we find a simple and safe way to get rid of the old ones and rejuvenate the blood-forming system so that it acts like you're young. If that works, that would work not only for COVID, but all of the infections. So what I've told you is that starting with a simple look at the blood to find the blood-forming stem cells, we've tapped into, and many other scientists have tapped into, ways to analyze the system that 20th century science didn't develop and 20th century pharmaceutical companies didn't go after. 
And we should have learned, and we are learning, that large pharmaceutical companies do what they do. Doctors trained in the 20th century do what they learned. So we have to do and redo every step of the way to take our discoveries through translation. And we think that should be funded not by profit incentive, but by those institutions that are not for profit, but want to see this new approach to end disease. Thank you. Thank you so much, Irv, for another tour de force. Uh, it's clearly sobering to think that we're stuck with COVID, um, at least for the foreseeable future until we get a vaccine. Um, we have some questions. I'll start um, with the first question about COVID-19 and CD47, knowing that CD47 is an immune checkpoint. How do you think it plays a role in older patients' susceptibility to COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 infection? My point of view is that the immune system did develop. They have lots of lymphocytes before transplants and cars that recognize new infections. And we make what are called memory cells. That's what vaccines do. All of us who had measles are immune to measles for life because we have long-lived lymphocytes. But as soon as transplants and cars came in, new viruses, new bacteria, and new diseases came up. But we as old people, not you, Kat, but me, now are living on a system that was highly efficient before trains, planes, and cars. It made lots of granulocytes and macrophages to clear out acute bacterial infections. And it wasn't able to anticipate that you would need lots of new lymphocytes for life. So when an old person gets COVID-19, there's a much higher chance that they will end up in the intensive care unit on ventilators with admittedly 20th century medicine to treat them. And so that means that because we haven't kept up with the science, the stem cell field has not developed itself commercially. The doctors trained in the 20th century think they understand all the diseases they treat. So the Wall Street and venture capitalists come to them and say, will this work? And I've had to close down two companies that went broke because they talked to their family doctors or somebody they knew who had the gall to say it won't work. That's why the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine is the most important experiment to bring discoveries to people because it steps in. It's the ombudsperson for people with disease. It isn't thinking about a profit. Now, the way it's done is that you come, if you're from California, you make a grant request to serve, and you get a review. And you can battle the review if you think that you were dealing with those people trained in the 20th century. And it can be overturned. 
The anti-CD47 therapy was the first thing we brought. It was funded almost entirely by CERM. It went from a laboratory experiment to a therapy. Today, it happened that the FDA gave breakthrough status for the treatment of myelodysplastic syndrome with the company's anti-47 plus azacytidine. So what I'm trying to say is that you need that intermediate. You need somebody who you can trust. Now, I'm going to add one more point because it's extremely important. We were able to isolate the human blood forming and the human brain forming stem cell because we could try to repopulate the complex organs of the body with candidate stem cells. But if we're going to do that, you're not going to get people to volunteer to be a radiator to see if your blood forming stem cell works or have brain surgery to see if your brain forming stem cell works. So we were able to develop an ethical US government approved, ethical society approved way of testing human fetal tissues, which were the result of somebody else's decision to have a therapeutic or elective abortion. We had to set it up so that no part of the process did the person who was deciding to have the abortion, knew about it. After the abortion, they used, they signed an approval for the tissue to be used for research instead of throwing it away. Nobody involved in the process got a profit, no matter what you've heard from the groups that are completely against this, not only for themselves, but for all of us as well. I'm saying that because last year, and now again, just this month, the federal government has imposed a ban on the use of human fetal tissues for NIH-funded research. And they've just requested all embryonic stem cell research be banned. Now, they believe in all their hearts they're doing the right thing. And I think everybody has a personal right to refuse to have a therapy or not have a therapy or do something, but they don't have the right in our state where we have our federal government separation of church and state, they don't have the right to impose their religion or their politics or their moral beliefs. It has happened, unfortunately, once again now, that embryonic stem cell research and fetal research is banned or is about to be banned. Sorry I took so long, but I wanted to make very clear that even these, this new research, COVID-19, that there are ways because we could isolate stem cells, which required the use of human fetal tissues to do it. And now we have a path to test, will this therapy or another therapy work? Something we can spread to everybody, except those people who are funded by the federal government.
I think that point was made very clear by Jake Javier earlier today as a patient advocate, where he said that he had the best of the worst condition. We don't want anybody to have to deal so positively with such a tremendous, um, onerous responsibility to take up the torch for everyone. And uh, certainly, Irv, you've been a champion uh, for stem cell research, um, both at the bench and in the clinic and bringing the two together. In terms of funding of um, CD47 and sort of de-risking it, um, do you think that CERM played a role there compared to your previous two companies? Did that help in terms of de-risking it for future companies or venture capitalists? Is that a model that we should use going forward? So when we made the discovery, Ravi Majetti and Sid Jaiswal and a whole bunch of us, including you, as you remember, we applied to the National Cancer Institute, of which I was on the advisory board. And they turned it down. They said, it won't work. We applied to CIRM, and they funded in 2009 enough money for us in the academic institution, working with our own clinicians, hiring regulatory people and FDA savvy people and people who do toxicity, all of the things that usually are in a startup company, which spends most of its time looking for more money. But CERN provided the money. In return, Stanford University and everybody else who accepted CERN money said, if this works, there will not only be a benefit for people, but the royalties that Stanford gets by some predefined mechanism will be given back to the state of California. And I hope the state of California uses it to support this kind of research. They're not required to, but I hope they do. Because then you would make evergreen this process. So four years after we got $20 million to develop a mouse study, we filed an initial new drug application to do clinical trials with both the FDA and the United Kingdom equivalent, MHRA. And I'll say proudly, they had no comments, no questions. They were actually wild that we could do so much science. And that's simply because the people who made the discovery developed the therapy. When things would go wrong in between, they already knew the system. If you sell it to a biotech, and I've started many, or to a big pharma, they're siloed. When things look wrong and somebody, a rising star, says it won't work, you save 50 billion bucks or more. So that kind of Machiavellian promotion by saving money can unfortunately derail many of the therapies. We're not the only ones who've had discoveries that could make therapies, but it's very important. So they funded, CIRM funded with $20 million, a four-year program and helped us develop it at Stanford. And then another 13 million to do the clinical trial, at which point Stanford says, this is now getting too practical. It should be licensed to one or another company. So we had to scramble and form a company to do it. There's no doubt 
that none of this would have happened without CERM funding because we tested the National Cancer Institute and they said it wouldn't work. And we've had a very similar experience and I, I completely agree. Of course, you taught me that many years ago. I didn't believe it at first, but I had to learn it myself. Um, there are a few questions here. I know that our fearless leader, Maria Milan, wants to uh, close out the day, uh, but I thought I'd just ask these very quickly. Thanks, sir, for a very exciting talk. The use of pure blood forming stem cells in a CD47 therapy appeared to carry real therapeutic ben benefits. One of cancer cells' uh, unique hallmarks is metabolic reprogramming, where nutrients are recruited from altered pathways to sustain rapid growth. Is there any link between the efficacy of an anti CD47 therapy and these metabolic changes, which may shape how cancer cells evade the eat me signal? It is a great idea. Mm -hmm. We don't know the answer yet, but members of the team, Roy Moat and Amira Barkal and a whole bunch of others, have developed a method to see, are there any more don't eat me signals we haven't seen? And we've discovered three more. Mm -hmm. So when we get to the point of looking at each person's cancer and saying, well, we will have to prescribe an antibody to don't eat me signal one and don't eat me signal two, that's precision medicine. When we do that, We'll have to look at the question, does diet or metabolic changes play a role? I would be surprised if it didn't. Right. Also, yeah, sorry, not, not to interrupt, but there's another question related to that uh, from Vishnu Shankar. Is it known, well, we know that human and mouse immune systems have important differences in B and T cell repertoires, for example, but how do these differences affect the recognition and effects of blood forming stem cells in treatment? Well, what you're trying to give back to somebody when you give a blood-forming stem cell transplant is the capability to restore everything that a young person's blood-forming system could do. So it means that we will have to use young people's blood-forming stem cells for a transplant if we want to get everything back or the long shot that I send at the end is find a way to eliminate the aged stem cells from aged people so that the young ones have a chance to redevelop or rejuvenate an immune system. I don't know if that answered the question, but that's the answer I got. Yeah, I think there are a lot more, uh, mainly laudatory comments. Great talk, uh, three exclamation marks. Thank you so much for your work, three exclamation marks. Uh, here's one from an anonymous attendee. Would it be worthwhile then to freeze away some of one's bone marrow when young or cord blood cells? Yes, well, cord blood has enough stem cells for when you're a baby. And those who've used cord blood for transplants um, have to use multiple cords for multiple different people to get even the development of new platelets, the development of new granulocytes in a period that the patient could survive. There are some promising new ways perhaps to expand them, but right now cord blood is mainly a commercial enterprise or a public benefit enterprise. The commercial ones say, well, you might get this disease or your kid might get this disease, you better save the kid's blood farming capacity. But if it's a genetic disease, the cord blood has the same disease. Mm -hmm. But it's life-saving. 
if you have 40,000, 100,000, 200,000 people who are given their bone marrow so that a chance match at the HLA locus will allow a recipient who needs it but maybe has no siblings to get a transplant. So you could say eventually maybe you should have mobilized blood taken from young adults and frozen down or children for the future. That would be an enormous logistical issue. When I first discovered, or my team first discovered this stem cell, oddly enough, a couple of commercial atomic energy companies quietly came to us and said, we want to have it for our employees. And I thought it was laudable, but their public relations department says to them, do you know what you're saying? that your people are at risk. Right. So it's gonna be important to do it, but we need to have a way that science is respected and translation of science can happen. And that does not exist today in the way the federal government, in our country, in many countries, is funding discovery and translation. Um, there are some other questions where we're starting to run out of time, but I'll just run through them quite quickly. Um, fabulous talk again. Your thoughts on NK cells. Should we train them to replace the tasks of T cells, given your comments on aging, et cetera, for therapeutic purposes? So natural killer cells are important cells. Natural killer cells recognize a dangerous cell that has lost its own what's called HLA or major compatibility complex. If it doesn't see self, it kills it. That's the simplest way to think about it. Many cancers do develop and then lose their MHC. So T cells can't kill them. What we discovered is that MHC um, is also recognized as not being there by not only natural killer cells, but by a set of macrophages. So that in the loss of the MHC, you lose a don't eat me signal and they eat, or you lose a don't kill me signal and they kill. So if you can capture the power of NK cells or macrophages or both along with T cells, you have a promising line to investigate therapeutically. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a related question. Are there stem cell markers to differentiate the young lymphocyte stem cells from the old macrophage stem cells that the young stem cells left in older patients can be purified and expanded for autologous replacement? So far, we have it in mice. We don't have it yet in humans. We're looking hard. Mm -hmm. uh, just two more questions. Immune suppressants seem to be part of stem cell transplantation. Can, should blood stem cells be a part of transplantation? Could blood stem cells be made from the same? ESC or IPSC line, for example, the old Geron trial for spinal cord injury, could the T cells all be replaced from the H1 lines as well as the, the oligodendrocyte progenitor cells? Well, not only Geron did spinal cord injury, but stem cells Inc. did spinal cord injury. And we found we had to immunosuppress those patients with spinal cord injury mm -hmm. or with dry AMD, uh, macular degeneration, or the congenital diseases. Mm -hmm. And we found against what was in the textbooks, 
that if you stop the immunosuppression, the immune system can get rid of even a brain or an eye or a spinal cord transplant. So of course, the logical way to go forward is to isolate blood-forming stem cells and brain-forming stem cells or islet cells or lung stem cells from the same genetic donor. And many of us at Stanford, funded by CIRM, are trying to do that right now. And then the final question also relates to clonal hematopoiesis. What is the mutational threshold in the bone marrow for expansion of a pre-leukemia stem cell into a leukemia stem cell? Well, we know it happens. Mm-hmm. And we know that the first mutations are in genes that allow a stem cell or any other cell that's going to give rise to a daughter cell that's different from the stem cell. It has to open some chromatin, express new genes, and it has to close some chromatin precisely to close off the genes that were stem cell genes. TEC2, DNMT3A. IDH1, IDH2, ASXL1 are all the beginning mutations of clonal hematopoiesis and leukemia, and their job is to open or close chromatin. Mm -hmm. So all of that field that we thought was abstract science is directly related to what we do. And that's why it is the job of CIRM and other funding agencies not to be narrow in their definition of what they fund, but ask, can this impact the stem cell field and can this lead to therapies? Well, that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Irv, for your usual brilliance and compassion. I've seen firsthand um, the patients that have benefited from everything that you've done and um, science has clearly benefited. So thanks again. And we look forward to your next great discoveries.